The thick cloud called a piper cub's tail, the match struck blue. We got my mother's father. slipped on his wooden fish head. The mouth worked and snapped all the bees back to the bungalow. I cry, like a buyer, Veterans Day Poppy. It don't get me high. Hello and welcome to Track by Track Presents Trout Mask Replica. Uh, my name is Joel Bacher, guest hosting for Darren Husted as we go track by track through Captain Beefheart and his magic band's legendary 1969 double album Trout Mask Replica. Today we are discussing Still Softly Through Snow, which is track 26 on the album, track 6 on side 4. This uh, track was recorded at Whitney Studios in Glendale, California in March of 1969. It was produced by Frank Zappa. Personnel is Bill Harkelroad, a.k.a. Zootorn Rollo on guitar, Jeff Cotton, a.k.a. Antenna Jimmy Siemens on guitar, Mark Boston, a.k.a. Rocket Morton on bass, John French, a.k.a. Drumbo on drums, and Don Van Vliet, a.k.a. Captain Beefheart, on vocals. Length of this track is 2 minutes and 18 seconds. Uh, My guest today is artist, musician, NPR commentator, monologuist, and founder of the famed and acclaimed magazine Duplex Planet, David Greenberger. David, thank you so much for being on the show. You're welcome. I'm I'm glad to be a part of this. Does this mean there's 28 episodes? That means that there are 20. I'm doing one for each track. That's incredible. Well, uh, I I don't know that they're all going to be good episodes, but, but I'm doing I'm doing my best. Um, it, it's a quixotic uh, uh, project, but it, it's helping keep me in some semblance of sanity during this quarantine times. Yeah, well, I would say uh, if they're not all up, up at the same, if you've got some qualms with one or the other, I would say that's the nature of a twenty-eight track album, anyway. Um, Probably true. There's a, a variation throughout the whole thing. So, so I, I know that you've been a, a, a Beefheart fan for some time. In fact, I, I have a, a vivid memory of you um, appearing on Conan O'Brien's show back in the early 90s, uh, discussing Duplex Planet and discussing um, exposing one of your um, one of the people that, that you would speak <laughs> oh, with yeah. in Duplex Planet to Tropical Hot Dog Night. Yeah, and, and actually, and what went, uh, there, uh, there was a, a man named Ken Eglin who lived at the uh, nursing home and who I wasn't doing this for ironic reasons. He genuinely wanted to hear music and he was very involved in the sort of club scene in the 1940s. He was an amateur tap dancer and he'd hang out with Lester Young. And, um, he actually wow. knew these people and he sort of never really had a significant career, but he was really into music. So his request when, when he met me was like, what's going on out there? And he pointed out the window and he wanted to just hear new music and, his uh so this wasn't one of those things where let's play old people some like music and see how how wacky it is for them this was genuinely him wanting to do that i wouldn't have done the ironic thing and he mm-hmm. responded to um beef heart he, well, he responded to these music that he he didn't know much about and, and i would play him things that he did people would make him sort of mixtapes of stuff and so it would have things you know it would have lester young but it could have King Crimson. And he would respond to the music by drawing, uh, by how it connected with elements that meant something to him. Did it have bluesiness? Uh, did it have soulfulness? Did it have swing? And Beefheart to him, was, he said, that's blues. 
uh, and and I would point out that King Crimson he didn't like. Uh, he said that's mm-hmm. the Academy. Uh, it was a, a too rigid <laughs> a uh, uh, sort of time time uh, signatures and stuff. So uh, so it was genuine his his interest in that. And I was recounting that um, to Conan and. An interesting byproduct of me telling that on Conan O'Brien was that Conan sort of introed the, you know, me saying this, you know, from his notes. And uh, and I said, uh, you know, this is Captain Beefheart. And so Conan, in his role as host, then needs to say Captain Beefheart was, he said, Captain Beefheart was sort of like Frank Zappa. Or he said something like that. And I said, well, not really, <laughs> which he probably didn't need me to do. And then he'd say, well, he's just kind of, he's a little weird. I said, well, to me, he isn't. And then further down the couch, who had been the previous guest, was Chuck Lorre from um, that dating show. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So he was on I, it. And he chimed in by saying, he's weird to me. So he, I thought it was great that I gave entree to this guy to reveal that he knows about Beefheart and, you know, wasn't that into it, but. I, I was pleased with that. That's one of those only in the early '90s kind of confluence of people. I think to to have you and Conan O'Brien and Chuck Lorre in the same in the same milieu, and for for Captain Beefheart to come up. I can't see that happening on television nowadays. But I remember as a as a um, a young man in in Michigan hearing you talk about that and just feeling like, oh, wow, someone else has heard of, of Frank Zappa and Captain Beefheart. Just a moment of, of feeling pre-internet, feeling a connection with someone else oh, great. talking about this music in a, in a, um, in a major setting, just uh, on duplex planet briefly. Um, I, I always got the impression you, you commented that it wasn't, you know, there was no intention of irony or, or like, let's play this weird music for this guy and see how he reacts. But it was coming from a place of him really wanting to hear it. I, I always got the impression with the duplex planet stuff, it all came from a place of of great earnestness and respect that that you were really enjoying talking to these guys and hearing what they had to say and their their perspectives on things. That it wasn't there was no kind of snarkiness at all to it. That it it came from a place of of love and interest and and curiosity. Oh, thanks. Well, that's was certainly you know my intention. Uh, you know, Ken was the only one for whom music was an issue because that was who he was. And it was a, it was just a small nursing home. Um, and I specifically took a job there as a activities director. It was a couple of years out of art school. And I just, you know, I thought I could, I don't know, I had to have a job. I was in my mid twenties. And uh, I, um, I genuinely just wanted to know a range of people who were older than me without them being in my family and without immediately heading to um, a, to their past without treating them as a repository of their past, but just considering what are the dynamics of conversation and how is it, I felt like getting to know Ken who was born in 1915. So he's like 40 some years older than me. Um, Getting to know him was not unlike getting to know anybody, any age. We both sort of put ourselves out there and have a genuine conversation. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't ever an interview. It was always a conversation, which, allows the mm. unexpected to happen and for both people to invest themselves in. Yeah, my, my mother-in-law is 97. So uh, I I enjoy conversing with her in that that respect. It often it slips into stories because she has a lot of stories and she likes to tell them. But um, it, it's she's a fascinating person to know. Yeah, well, uh, I, you know, I think that um, 
it's impossible to really have a conversation without drawing on things that happened before that conversation. And um, true in our culture, I mean, people, the, the model that we all live by is that um, our, our sort of glory years are behind us and we retell those stories and every example um, underscores that. Um, and that people feel, and, and this is confirmed for people all the time, that their, their most resonant stories are the ones that they're, the tried and true ones about, you know, saving a puppy from a burning building or what they did in the war. And that the small mm-hmm. things that people do, which is actually more how we get to know them, um, most people would feel like, I don't really have anything to tell you. But it's like in saying that, and they're talking about how, look at this, how my coffee is making a pattern on the saucer or, you know, any little thing like that is sometimes more revealing about being in the moment with somebody than the past history. But um, we we devalue the, 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 the smaller non-narrative um, tellings, you know, there's a value placed on a, on a, on a good narrative. And you know, which is good sometimes. Yeah, we want a story with a beginning and a middle and end and sometimes miss the, the um, what's special about the, the quotidian moments. Yeah, well, actually, I was, in day-to-day life. I was just talking with somebody about this uh, yesterday uh, because we, we genuinely, we, we retell things and we seek narratives because we want, we want, we want to get back to whatever it was that happened in an emotional way. We want to sort of recapture it. But I actually feel like most of the profound sort of emotional moments that I have are not full narratives. They're just like a, a glimpse. You know, the thing that people experience quite often and with a great deal of mystery is there'll be a, a, a smell and they'll, they'll, you'll all of a sudden not know, whoa, whoa, what is that? That's powerful. And there's no narrative attached to it, but it's powerful uh, emotionally. And um I think that some of the most potent things like that, it could just be a moment in a song. Like, you know, the, we'll listen to a three-minute song, but I'll be sometimes waiting for something that happens two minutes into it, but you can't just go to that. You've got to go through the timing. And and that little moment two minutes into it can, can strike me and tickle me or move me in the same way that it did 50 years ago or something. And so that has a, has a power. Like, oh, that little thing that, Charlie Watts did in the middle of what, you know, can be anything um, that we, it, it's, again, it's not the narrative of the song, but some tiny moment in it that really uh, floored me. So. It's interesting to me that the two examples you picked out are, are smell and music. Cause to me, those are like the strongest connectors to both memory and emotion. Yeah. For me, the, like a certain smell, you smell a certain smell and it's instantly, you have it, it it's almost like a moment of time travel where suddenly you're back to a place that you were and remembering that for for even if that smell wasn't there for some reason it's triggered that memory right and then and moments in music that kind of that bypass any kind of intellectual critical function and just immediately go to the heart and to emotion and affect you without you even really necessarily being able to say why or to give any kind of um analysis of it it just it just is it's just an experience yeah that's well well put it's definitely it's the free of analysis is the thing that i think the thing that we sort of aren't taught but the the thing that's really beautiful about um 
experiences that we have that whether in the art, the realm of art, or I mean, art is certainly a place where this can happen a lot, uh, is to have something that we experience that we can't quite, you know, wrap ourselves around, but we are haunted by it. We keep thinking about it. And I think that culturally, in general, just from school experience, people are feel like they've failed if they don't know. Like people will say something to me about, I keep thinking about that piece of yours that you did. And I, you know, I just, I can't figure out why I, um, why it gets to me. And they're saying it sometimes apologetically, but I feel like, you know, just stay in that. That mystery is, everything isn't about an answer. Um, the, the, the point you made about the smell taking us back sometimes, it doesn't even locate us in a specific spot that we can even picture. Like we can't rebuild the room or the moment or the trip we were on or whatever it was, it's just sort of like, whoa, what, what was that? Um, and the power, I think, sometimes is in the beautiful mystery of it, that it can't be nailed down. Yeah, I think that in, in some ways, one of the reasons I embarked on this project was to engage in analysis of this album that's that has affected me and been a huge part of my life since the first time I heard it. And what I what I keep coming back to is it it will continue to elude being pinned down in any way, shape, or form. Like I've I've done several episodes of this so far. I've I've had great guests. We've we've broken down songs and talked about them in fairly minute detail and discussed the lyrics. And I listen to those songs again after doing the episode, and I'm still hearing things I've never heard before, and they're still affecting me in a way that is I I, I can't really. I can't really pin down there's there's an ineffable essence to to some music depending you know if it if it moves you and affects you in that way that that you can't ever really um i mean the mechanical aspects of it you can certainly parse out the technical aspects but the the effect that it has on you is is um untouchable in some way yeah i mean today um on a drive back from from outing we were on up on the Hudson and um, um, driving back then I um, was was re-listening to um, Trout Mask. Uh, Trout Mask like a lot of other things that are, are pivotal for me um, I don't necessarily play um, a lot or regularly I just sort of have mm-hmm. internalized it so it was it was sort of um, with this with you being in touch and, and doing this sort of had me listen to stuff again even listening to you know, Men in Volts stuff first but then just listening to the album and the thing that struck me uh, it was interesting was that over the the shape of the album I, this had never occurred to me before because i it, i wasn't even remembering the the running order for some reason the running order kind of eludes me um in, in the way maybe just because it's so big um it's all these episodic things um and the, the songs themselves can be episodic but the way it you know hands off you know, you know steel softly is, is quite near the end and then with um veterans day poppy ending it i felt like there's a it's almost like having been on some kind of a crazy trip some kind of a ride and veterans day poppy with it it's it's got a certain degree of uh expected forms um to it um and, and mm-hmm. sort of expected um kinds of uh, like it almost feels not genre specific, but it, but it, um, it would be an entry point for somebody who, who maybe couldn't come in some other way. And so it felt like, you know, um, you've come to the end of the trip and 
if somebody just hears this, just say, shh, we're not going to tell you what happened before this on the trip. So it just felt like we're going to just set you down easily here now. And, you know, we're, you know, we didn't want to, you know, we're setting you back where we found you. You're going to be okay. And I'd never really thought of it that way about doing that music, but I feel like it does kind of, um, a great thing about uh, our art is that it can, it's a sort of a, a, a coming from a trusted source, and they basically are saying, just trust me, you're going to lose your bearings, but I'm with you. You're not going to get totally lost in the woods, and then I'll, I'll get you back home. It's, and the beautiful thing that happens in anything, literature, film, music, paintings, is that whole act of losing your bearings and just trusting and finding your way into the unknown in this very safe way, which is why like art is so important because it's kind of a metaphor, a safe metaphor for the, those kinds of experiences in life. And anyway, it just struck me that, wow, it, it's just saying, all right, we got you back home and you, you, you're okay. You can take the trip again, but you know, maybe just rest. Now. That's a really interesting interpretation. And that's, um, it, it's, it really feels fitting because in starting off with Frownland, it's it's kicking off a with one of the more jarring songs on the album in terms of structure and dissonance and so forth and then lyrically it's very much a call to take my hand and come with me and and see this place that that i found and then like you say to to end up on on veterans day poppy particularly with the instrumental outro on veterans day poppy which is this kind of melancholic guitar figure that that repeats it it is a feeling of of being of being set down and having come to the end of of uh, some kind of uh, vision quest, I guess. Yes, I mean, I, I think that it does. And I mean, the other thing I'd add, and I don't think she'll uh, be bothered by this, but you know, my, I was playing it in the car with my wife, and I were on this, you know, this little afternoon trip that we took, and um, so she was. Uh, Child mask, not surprisingly, isn't. Um, something that she would ever seek out. She knows about it. And and I've played her other things in Beef Hearts that are certainly uh, an easier entry point, I suppose. Um, mm-hmm. But when Veterans Day Poppy played, and especially that outro, she said, wow, that was, I don't think she ever knew that that existed or, you know, that that was there. And, um, it was sort of a, a calm and an oasis for her among um, some other things that was, playing um that were admittedly you know dense for somebody who you know wouldn't know their way through it all so but that she she's i realized oh yeah that's this there's a beauty in this that's undeniable to anybody who you know is open to to new music that that, um, that just allows something with veterans day that, that you wouldn't find on a lot of the other pieces yeah, that that's something that's come up on a, on a couple of episodes. Is the moments on this album of what what could be traditionally defined as beauty? I, I think that um, Orange Claw Hammer is another track that that has just from his vocal performance and the melody has has something approximating um, a, a more. I mean, it's it's sonically a little rough because it's you know recorded on this home tape recorder and it's got the clicks as he's he's going through and presumably improvising each new line. But um, it, it the soaring quality of the melody and the melancholy of the the lyrics 
the and occasional like striking beauty of the lyrics um that there there's something in a more beautiful in a more traditional sense than the you know kind of gnarled uh tangled beauty of some of the rougher tracks mm-hmm. yeah but so this this music has been a part of your life for for a very long time you mentioned men and volts earlier this this was your this was your band and you guys got together in the late seventies. Yes. Um, I actually, I, I had played in bands, um, in high school and in like the first year of college when I was still in my hometown. And, uh, uh so I'd done that quite a bit and, and they, you know, over the course of high school bands, they went from, you know, being covers and like learning to play when I was younger to, to being original things. Uh, mm-hmm. But that all stopped by like 73. And then I you know, moved from, to Boston, went to art school and hadn't been in bands for a while. And then it was on a, uh, a trip that I was on um, visiting family in, in Atlanta, uh, Georgia. And uh, friends, uh, I had a couple of friends there. I, I'd never lived there, um, but um, they said, we're going to go see the Glenn Phillips Band and the Swimming Pool Cues. And uh, I, I I knew of Glenn Phillips, didn't know of the swimming pool cues. But uh, seeing that band, I felt like, wow, I want to be in a band again. And so as mm-hmm. soon as I got back to Boston, I got the, the Boston Phoenix, the weekly arts paper that had a musician's listings. And there was an ad. It was as if it was designed specifically for me. It was saying, looking for a bass player to play Captain Beefheart material. <laughs> so it was like, um, wow! That uh, Phil Kaplan, who really started it, and uh, so I—that was the beginning of. I just—that was the week I looked at the paper, and that's what happened. And Phil is still my friend, and that's—it uh, yeah, was just a happenstance, doing its uh, best. So. Had you tackled Beefheart material before in previous bands? No, never. I never would have even occurred to me to to do it. Um, it there always felt like there was a difference between um, one the, the things that I was playing when I was in high school, I was in a band with people who were like five and six years older than me. They were out of college and I, I was the bass player. Mm-hmm. So and they were like, it was a working band that would play clubs three times a week and, you know, ski lodges and fraternity dances. And so it was, you know, cover stuff. And um, so beef heart stuff would never have sort of fallen within that as a regular working uh, band and uh, the, the whole idea for the men and volts thing was to tackle a range of the material from throughout the entirety of his career up to that point which would have included um uh, uh, bat, bat chain puller uh, shiny beast mm-hmm. <clears throat> and um so towards that end uh, we and the idea was we would just do one concert or something and uh, but it ended up taking about a year to work it out and there were there were i think there were eight people all together there was a core of us you know a bass drums two guitars two different singers there was also a, a guy who played marimba and there was a saxophone for the things that needed that we also had two trap sets for things like dr dark um okay so it was it was an enormous um but but pretty uh, fantastic undertaking. It became just what we we'd get together. I don't know, it was three or four times a week and just work on this. And everybody in the time apart had done their homework and had tried to figure out what their parts were. 
and uh, then we he was he was really just trying to memorize a, a a script i mean something like steal softly through snow which is only as you said it was like about two plus minutes long it, it, uh two eight two minutes 18 seconds yeah i mean it's in much the same way that you know but that completely different musically that brian wilson would have these pocket symphonies or something still softly mm-hmm. in two and a half minutes keeps moving from one part to another um each one fully formed um and each one completely arranged and somehow giving way to the next one. Um, so it was just A, B, C, D, just moving forward. The, the repetition was coming from uh, the lyrics, but it kept forever kind of moving into new territory as it moved along, which seemed like the right thing to do if you're looking at this landscape he's describing, moving through it with... Um, some consternation and sadness of what's at, you know, what at humanity. And, you know, it's one of his themes, um, but that it's forever moving forward feels genuinely like what it means to move through a landscape. You know? That's a great way of describing it. And yeah, lyrically he's, it's, it's one of his more direct songs on the album in a, in a lot of ways, because it is, it's the, the uh, rearing of the head of his eco- ecological concerns and the um, the him watching the wild geese flying away. I like uh, Mike Barnes's description from his book. Van Vliet is heartbroken by seeing the geese flying off for winter. He is left behind to witness highways being built over fields of grass and with only murderous humanity for company. Wow. Which uh, I I do I think all of us can feel the pain of just having murderous humanity for company at the moment. Yeah. Well, the, and well, the the other thing. That, um, that that's really beautiful way he put that. The other thing is that the, its positioning on the album almost feels like I've been telling you a lot of stuff. You know, you know, some of it might be fairly opaque. I got to just leave you with this thing that's really important. You got to, you know, you got to think about this. So he positioned it um, near the end, which is sort of a way of affirming, like. In closing, let me just say this: it was, you know, it was close to right. closing. Yeah. So, what was the process like? You said you guys met three or four times a week working on this material, and I mean, some of the some of the stuff from some of the the non trout mask or or like my decals off um, albums is, I'm presuming, a little bit easier to to pick up than than some of the uh, the trout mask material, but. What what was your what was the process like for working on the more complicated songs? You guys did you work out your parts separately and then try and piece them together, or or how how did you go about it? That's a good question because uh, I can't really. I just know that I had to figure out my parts, and then we must have all. All right, here, we're here. We're starting at the beginning. Let's just move through it, and it's like everybody had a script, and we just knew that it had to line up and then it's different points. I remember uh, John Proudman, the drummer sort of knew what everybody, he was sort of on top of every sort of rhythmic overlay that was happening and sort of was aware be like, well, well, you went to that other part to your rhythm is changing too soon. Or, you know, I think that um, we were fortunate in having John be a part of it and him being so polyrhythmically sensitive uh, and, and, and aware. Um, so I, I think that in something like this, 
we would just know, all right, I, I do this thing here like eight times. I mean, it's not like you can even follow the lyrics to know where the change is. Right. Um, so it's more, um, and there could have even been things where somebody said, all right, that there were 12, well, let's check that out. You know? um, and so we had to all know that we were, had ended up with the same roadmap, you know, and, uh, or the same destination point, different maps on the, uh, circuitous routes that got us all to the same point at the same time. Um, and I, you know, I know we spent hundreds of hours for the life of me. I can't, none of them sort of are a narrative moment that plays back other than I just know we were there and it was um, rich and felt like, wow, this is a, this is a good part of life. So uh, I can't really, uh, beyond that, I, I just know that we worked at it a long time and it ended up being a significant amount of work. Um, and it, the first show that we did, I think we realized we needed to do more than one. And so we did mm -hmm. four or five and, and it, it word got around and it, it got attention. And I think by the fourth or fifth time, there was a hip little club in Boston called the underground. And I think we had played there a couple times and then, um, the guy who booked it at some point said, uh, you know, we don't book cover band. So he wouldn't book us again. So it was like, well, I guess it's a peculiar stance in this case, but I guess he's got a point and maybe uh, we should just, uh, we did what we came to do and it's time to stop. And then so a, a band emerged from that and whether rightly or wrongly, we kept the same name, which in some ways um, was probably misleading because the handle all the time there was, oh, that's the band that did the beef heart stuff. And mm -hmm. ultimately by the, certainly by the third album, we were much closer to, I don't know, a television or Richard Thompson or talking heads. Not that we were like any of those, but I mean, it, it wasn't really like uh, beef heart and it became mm -hmm. an easy angle for somebody to, say about us or to write about us um, and and four of us um sort of stayed together then when we when we pulled the plug on doing the beef art stuff and spent another year then just trying to figure out who we were um phil was already composing music and we were just trying to figure out well what who are we now and um so a year later we re-emerged with our own material and and then, you know, over the course of the 80s, had uh, five or five albums out. It, the, the core of the band must have had a very good rapport then to to go from we're, just, we're getting together to make, to, to cover Beefheart to getting to, um, we've got something here, let's let's make some original music. The, that it must have been pretty, it sounds like this was a very positive and inspiring um period in your life to be to be working with this guys on this on this music and then moving on to to original compositions it was yeah i mean um i guess that that gets me to that the, what i actually learned from the beef heart experience um which sort of became clear to me at some point that we learned um three things from putting that work in one was as a as a unit as the, as an ensemble we we had a good work ethic we knew how to do this mm -hmm. and put the time in and do it. So, and that was by dint of, you know, doing the beef art stuff that we 
develop this work ethic. We would just go in there and do it. Um, so we had that. And I think that we all came to understand the sort of complex layered workings of a rhythmic engine. Um, and I think that that rolled into or fit with a lot of Phil Kaplan's interests. And he was studying African drumming. He studied Indian music. And so there were um, some rhythmic um, ideas and a, you know, layered rhythms on top of each other um, sometimes that um, certainly for myself, I, I felt like I had a much better understanding of how to to think in one time while somebody else is playing in another time and how that was, there's a kind of beauty and a kind of push and pull to the engine that that makes. That's the second thing we learned. And the third thing that we learned from doing the PFART stuff was if you're an artist, you know, go play in your own yard. And uh, I think that that, we, we met him, I think around the time, I don't know what tour that would have been. Maybe it was around the time of, um, I guess maybe Doc at the radar station, maybe it was 80 something. I, I can't remember which one, but we met him at a show and he had heard that we were doing this and he was seriously unmoved by it. Um, um, and, and seen basically he said that, like, that sounds in, yeah. that sounds in character for him. Yeah. I have to say. Well, I think that he said, well, that was probably hard to figure that out. Um, but what I took from it was, um, uh, you know, why would you be doing what I do? Uh, how is there, how am I to respect you for that? Um, so what he could respect was, that was probably a lot of work. And, and I understood what he meant. I think that his mm -hmm. respect, was for a kind of uh, uh, purity of vision, uh, sort of a sense of where, where you're going, an artist's voice in whatever that might be, paintings, literature, whatever. I think that he, as an artist, was responding to other artists' voices. And we were basically saying, we have no voice, but we've got a skill set. And I think that that's of minimal interest to him. So there, there is an album um, extant of from this period of of Men and Volts of your of the um, the work that you did uh, covering the Beefheart music. Um, and uh, from what we were you were telling me via email, um, it was kind of Byron Coley's um, idea. I hope I'm pronouncing his yeah, name. Yeah, yeah, well, that's that's correct. Yeah, and his Byron had, has championed Men and Volts right along. He wrote some big articles on on the band. Um, and there was a box set that came out a couple of years ago, of a four LP thing of unissued stuff. And he wrote things for that, but he's got that label uh, feeding tube. And mm -hmm. he, he, you know, I, and I know him and he, he had said, you know, I really like the, the way you guys did the beef art stuff. And he's, he said he liked it more than the reformed magic band. And I said, okay. I, High praise. Yeah. And, uh, and it was, it was interesting at this remove, it was, you know, nearly 40 years after we were doing it early on. I, I, I always wanted to sort of sever the, the connection with the beef art thing because it was too easy and often an incorrect <clears throat> assessment of what we were doing. So at this point it was like, if you wanted to put an LP out, it was fine. I mean, we're not, there's no parlaying career moves by men and bolts anymore and haven't been in decades. So, um, <laughs> I was glad that he was interested and, but I said, well, then you, I, I don't even know how to think my way through this. Why don't you choose 
from, you know, he had the, the recordings we'd made, some four-track recordings in the rehearsal space and some live things. And he went through them and made all the selections for what would be on it and, and then put it out on, on LP. So anyone listening to this podcast who is interested in that, you can, uh, it was a limited release, but you can find copies of it. I, I just ordered one uh, off of eBay and it turns out that I'm ordering it from uh, Mr. Greenberger himself. So uh, looking forward to receiving that, that LP soon. It's called a, a Giraffe is Listening to the Radio. Men and Volts play Captain Beefheart. Yes. And I've heard little clips from it and uh, what I've heard sounds great. I'm, I'm excited to hear, to hear the entire thing. Um, a giraffe is listening to the radio. Uh, the um, the quote from from Mr. Coley is the album title is an obscure reference to a Cal Schenkel drawing, uh, referencing a tune from Trap Mask Replica. And I, I like Mr. Coley's statement: "Figure it out and impress your friends with what a goddamn nerd you are." <laughs> yeah. So, I'm just going to leave that for I'm not I'm going to leave it for the listener to to figure out where that comes from rather than rather than lead lead them down that that. That's right. Um, Yellow Brick Road. I think originally um, are you... he had wanted to, to use uh, something of Cal Schenkel's, but uh, given when Schenkel had done it and Schenkel's then acute fear of uh, Gail Zappa's lawsuits, um, was afraid to do anything that might have been construed as being under the Zappa umbrella because she was litigation. Oh, that's unfortunate. Happy. And so, so he didn't go with whatever that, that was. Yeah, I've I've remained fairly blind to the the legal um, issues with the the Zappa clan, but I I gather it's it's gotten pretty hairy to the point where the the brothers are are feuding with each other and such, which is very unfortunate. Yeah, so we don't even need, we don't need to we don't need to give it any time. Uh, that's fair. Um, are you still in touch with the the rest of Men and Volts? Do you guys play at all? Uh, I'm in touch with uh, uh, Phil Kaplan. Um, he and I, you know, actually, he's done some other recordings. He's had different ensembles through the years. And um, we were also, we were sort of the ones, once I, I moved from Boston, I stopped being the bass player in the band because I thought the band could get more done without me being there. But I sort of was treating Men and Volts as my conceptual toy in a way, with Phil being the, the main writer. And I was writing lyrics, but then I'd also say, uh, the next album is going to be called The Mule, and here's why. And the others would say, okay. And uh, so I've, I've written um, some other lyrics for things that he does. Um, he's not um, doing a lot, but and in fact, I, I'll be seeing him in a, in a day or so because he's you know, thinking of moving out, out this way uh, now that he doesn't really need to be in Boston. So, but I'm. I, in regular touch with Phil. And and I have to ask, as as a extremely amateur bass player myself, do you still play the bass? I do. Um, not with any regularity. I mean, the other thing that I do are these uh, monologues uh, with music mm-hmm. that are sort of an outgrowth of the duplex planet. And in uh, there have been about 20 albums and 20 CDs uh, over the years um, with a wide range of musicians, guys from Los Lobos and NRBQ and uh, Bird Songs of the Mesozoic, uh, all different people. And on a few of these, um, sometimes these would be done in artist residencies uh, or commission pieces for a museum or or a residency for a university or something where I would spend time in, say, Milwaukee or Portland, um, Erie, 
um, you know, a few other places, Santa Ana, California, and I would record conversations with people that I would then adapt into monologues that I would tell, but then working closely with a musical ensemble, sometimes different for each one, but lately, you know, with the same ensemble, where the music is developed specifically for each particular monologue. And um, mm -hmm. on a few of these, as I've been finishing them up um, at a different studio, um, I would say, well, geez, you know, this should just have a bass part here. Let me do this. And there's one album that's coming out, um, supposed to come out in Belgium, all things, that I did with um, Robin Hitchcock, and um, uh, with him playing guitar and me on bass, and this guy, Mark Greenberg, on drums and we did it at the Wilco loft um, using their oh stuff. wow cool and um, so we recorded there when, when Robin's tour had him out there and so we just recorded uh, st uh, the music and then I added monologues uh, to it and you know, we figured out how to chop up the music that we had done over one weekend and to make a whole album and then added background vocalists around the talking and stuff so on that one I played bass on the whole thing and in advance of that I had to I just kept the bass by my desk and I would just, even though I'm not doing anything or I was on the phone, I just needed to develop calluses so I could sure. play, and play a little longer. So, so yeah, things like that come up, but I don't, um, I'm not trying to be a performing bass player or anything, but I, I, I approach it as like a, an arranger in, in the pieces that we're doing where wouldn't a part like this be nice? That sort of thing. Is there a centralized place where people can can um, order recordings of, of these composition of these pieces that you're doing with the the monologue and and working with with other musicians? Uh, there are, but actually, there's a couple sites, both of which are problematic, but they are there. Um, there's the Duplex Planet website, which is there, and that's gone through a bit of an upheaval because the underlying company that was handling the orders. Um, not only went under, but absconded with everybody's money. It was, they were a company in the nineties that pre before oh, PayPal. No. So, so that's just sitting there. So sometimes people will go in and they say, I can't really order. I'll say, well, just let me know what you want and we can do it through PayPal. But it's one of those things where I got to deal with that. And then the other thing is just my website, davidgreenberger.com, um, which I'm redoing and reloading all the imagery up for all the visual art that I'm, that I do. So, that may look a little um, wobbly, but you know the about section and things like that all work fine. And I'm reachable through all that. I'll make sure that is included in the uh, the episode data uh, with this, so people can can go to your site and, and check that material out. I have to ask. I know Robin Hitchcock is also a, a Beefheart fan. Did you did the have the two of you discussed his music at all? Probably. Um, I've known Robin a long time. Um, um, I can't remember specifically, but we certainly spent a lot of time together and I visited over when he was living in London. I, you know, so we see each other, um, with some regularity. Um, and I, I'm nothing specific that I remember, but we uh, just a shared, it would just be in our shared sort of, uh, backgrounds of music that mattered because in a way the soft boys, um, some people would reference with early Men in Bold. So it was like, oh, here's a band that seems influenced by Beefheart. So, um, oh, interesting. So there was a bit of a 
connection there. And on- he, he's a very, very funny man. I, um, uh, one of my favorite quotes of his is, um, I think I cut you off. I'm oh, sorry. Yeah. Did you have? Oh, no, no. I, go on with the, the Robert. Oh, no. Go, go ahead. Oh, go was, ahead. But it was, a, it was separate. So this will be out of, all out of order. So better that you stick with Robin. And then I'll. No, that's the the uh, right. the nature of a podcast is to end up out of order. Okay, well then I was just going to say the other thing that is out there that it, people can hear and that actually is is the most timely of my things, and I'm not playing bass on any of these, but um, I've been doing a series of recordings uh, with Tyson Rogers, who's, who's the main composer on the last three albums that I did, <clears throat> and uh, he lives in Colorado, and uh, we wanted to keep doing some work together. We had just finished a project in uh, this spring that I was supposed to have gone to Chattanooga to present at a theater there. Um, there was my conversations with adults with disabilities who go to a day center, as well as conversations I had with blind people. And, uh, but again, the material was very much like the duplex planet material, where it's just somebody talking, mm-hmm. not about the thing that makes them different from us, but just the thing that makes them an individual, you know, that they see and observe. Um, anyway, we when this whole, um, when the lockdown or shutdown began, um, the idea came up that we should start doing some recordings. And um, so I started, you know, having conversations with friends and family during this time of isolation, relative isolation, and developing just very short text pieces that I would deliver as monologues. Each of these pieces about a minute long with Tyson composes music and then I figure out what I want to do with them and how we then reshape or arrange the music around the um, around the text and there have been 75 of them so far I put up a new one about every other day they're all on band camp so they can just be heard there and um, it's called everybody's home and it's you know um, it's just you know whether it's somebody making bread or you know small things that somebody's noticing or uh, you know, the backdrop certainly is what's going on now, but I, it's not never the foreground. Um, and so those, you can find it on Bandcamp by just searching. I think if you search my name plus Tyson, or maybe everybody's home would get you there. But David Greenberger and Tyson would get you to it. And uh, there's new ones every day and they're, they only take a minute and there's no, you know, to sit through a video. So yeah. I, I'm looking at it right now. Yes, the Everybody's Home, uh, David Greenberger and Tyson Rogers. Uh, it is available on Bandcamp, and I will make sure also that the um, the link to that is included uh, along with the the other episode information here because that sounds like that sounds like a very um, comforting project in some ways. Yeah, I think it covers this, the, it covers the gamut of uh, you know a piece that has moments of. Uh, I just feel out of sorts today. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a darkness, you know, the acknowledgement of those things. But then uh, there's a really beautiful one that came from a conversation I had with um, Robert Wyatt. Um, and oh, sure. The, the piece that's on there is called The Lovely Thing About Being Human. And it's really quite beautiful. It's very much the way Robert, Robert um, thinks about just trying to find the, the beauty and a level of kindness that's um, nice to experience and that I always experience when I talk with him. If the, anyone listening to this podcast has never heard uh, the work of Robert Wyatt, which I find unlikely, like I kind of feel like if you're a, a Beefheart fan, you're probably at least 
semi aware of of Wyatt as as being another another um, important artist. But on the off chance that you have not heard Robert Wyatt's music, um, it, it is essential that you listen to it. He's certainly uh, another one of my very very favorite uh, musicians and songwriters of all time. Yeah, I, I can't imagine uh, my life without his music in it. Probably in a, in a way that's more profound for me than, than the beef art stuff, um, I would say. The beef art stuff has a, a mystery and a dazzle and a puzzlement, and Robert doesn't pose um, musical puzzles for me, but creates a sort of um, just an emotional bed. It's just sort of like, wow, and how did that... Uh, it's just very... Even the, the beautiful stuff is emotional. It's just sort of the, the beauty of life somehow is in his, his work. And, and like Van Vliet, he is, is gifted with one of the greatest voices to ever, to ever sing popular music. Yeah, it's, it, it's a unique voice that it, it sort of finds its way in by the illusion that it's conversational. But it's, it's so skilled and just genuine. You know, I, I never doubt him. I never doubt any passage in anything that he's doing. I believe that he's there and he's fully committed in in everything that he's done. That that's an excellent way of putting it. Yeah, there there's an earnestness and a humaneness and humor humor and humanity in his work. Maybe my next podcast will have to be a Robert Wyatt podcast. And tying in with um, Duplex Planet to my um, uh, ongoing amazement uh, surprise at the time um, on what he decided would be his final album, um, Comic Opera. Um, mm-hmm. they, he said, uh, Alfie and I were wondering if it would be okay if we dedicate a song to you. So that's what they did. Oh, wow. So there's one about um, Alfie's then, um, well, f- failing, Alfie's mother was living with him then. She's mm-hmm. died about 10 or 12 years ago, but um, had dementia. And so I guess the, the duplex plan of things meant something to them in that re- re- regard. And so they singled me out um, in a kind and flattering well, way. That's a great honor. And, and also it's, it must be heartening to know that, that the work, the work that you did has provided kind of a balm for them during what I'm sure was a, a really emotionally raw time. Yeah. I mean, I, I was, uh, it's one of those things having grown up, um, on, on Robert's music, originally with Soft Machine, as those albums were coming out. I think I started with Soft Machine 2 when it came out. Um, those were um, those were one of the, the glimpses I had as a, I don't know what age I was then, 15 or 16-year-old, that especially by Soft Machine 3rd and his sidelong piece in there, I think those were one of the clues to me as a, as a just trying to find my way in the world teenager that the world was somehow was definitely bigger than Erie, Pennsylvania and whatever I could bicycle <laughs> bicycle to from the suburbs and that there was mystery out there and I had to find my way into it. And it was like a clue that the world is out there or something just sonically because it didn't look like or sound like my neighborhood or my life or Erie. It just felt like, I don't know where this is, but it's in my head. It's hard to describe no, I know exactly what you mean. It's it's you never forget those moments when you kind of get these transmissions from another world, and 
feel like and it just speaks to something in you that that and opens up a door to a whole to a part of yourself and your mind and the world that you just did not know existed prior to that yeah i mean that and and we're we're especially open to them at that age when we're still sort of um, very acquisitive about the world you know we're just drawing stuff in so i think that uh, and we're still just sort of getting our sense of self really at that age so those moments can be absolutely uh, potent in ways that it's hard to even have language for because at the time the language i'm using to describe it now would not have been anything on my mind and it was just like wow um and you'd leave it at that but it's as close as i come as an adult to being an infant when you don't have any language for anything but you learn how to like stack one thing on top of the other and have it not fall over wow you know so um it's uh, later on yeah an instant nonverbal emotional reaction yeah exactly well i would dearly love to talk with you all day about everything but i, I imagine you have other things that you need to do so i'm i'm going to once again thank you so much for for being on the show this has been such a pleasure to talk to you um, did you have anything that, so normally um, Darren rates the songs and I say on every episode for me, every song on this album is five out of five because it's impossible to compare them with anything else. Um, you are welcome to rate the song out of five. If you wish, you don't have to. And if you did wanted to add anything about additional about Beefheart that we haven't covered and, or if you would like to plug anything that we have not discussed. If you have any social media accounts that you'd like to plug, any projects that you're working on that you'd like people to know about that we have not previously discussed, uh, the floor is yours. No, I don't. I don't think so. Actually, I, I I need to thank you for sort of like putting me in a position to think my way through some of this that I'd never thought about. Especially your answer, or your your question about um, what was it like um, working on that stuff, and I realized I, I I don't know. I don't know that that's a failure. But you're just so in the moment, and I know the end result that we accomplished something. But I thought, geez, I just I know who was in the room, but I think that that's also the nature of the things that that interest me. That um, we have we have events that happen, and we have conversations in them, and our conversations are a way that we connect with another person. And conversations, for the most part, I feel like are a way the two people who just happen to be in proximity to one another and alive at the same time can be together. And we forget most of our conversations, but we remember the, we, we form an emotional memory of the person and we'll think that we had a great conversation and we can't really remember them. And that's not a failure of memory. I think that's more indicative of the purpose of conversation. And granted, there are conversations with data that we need to extract, things that we've got to get done, mm -hmm. places we've got to be, life lessons, things that we encapsulate. But those are very rare. I think that most of the things that we uh, talk about um, are simply a way to just be fully present with another person. And um, so I was thinking of all that when you were asking me about what did we, how did we do it? And I thought, well, it comes back to this thing that I've talked about. I, I've talked about this idea of conversation being a thing that we forget and not as a, not as a failure, but as it served its purpose. And we were left mm -hmm. with this emotional resonance, you know, and uh, um, so I didn't really overlay that on the men and volts experience, but it's another sort of 
proof to me that the idea that I have, and that I actually I've spoken about this. There's a um, a TED a TEDx talk that I did about specifically about this idea about conversation. That's on it's actually on my website in the about section. It's on YouTube um, called "A Quarter of a Million Forgotten Conversations" um, that touches on this. But um, I really I sometimes don't reference that back on myself. So. Well, I will make sure that that uh, the link to that TED talk is included with this as well. And it it has been such an enormous pleasure to have this conversation that we will probably forget, but uh, hopefully remember the the um, the enjoyment. I will certainly remember the enjoyment that I had discussing this music and and your experiences with you. Um, as far as track by track goes, if you want to follow us on Twitter, it is at underscore track by track. If you want to follow me on Twitter, uh, I don't know why you would want to do that because Twitter's horrible, um, but it's at Joel A. Bakker, that's B-A-K-K-E-R. I'm also on Instagram with the same uh, tag, which uh, if you're going to follow me anywhere, I'd recommend Instagram because I post a lot of pictures of my cat and who doesn't like to see cat pictures. Um, and uh, Mr. Greenberger, thank you again so much for taking the time to talk with me. You're today. welcome. Thanks so much for inviting me. And uh, at such time as you want to do something on Robert Wyatt, I would gladly... Uh chime in in any way that you can, would help so well i will take you up on that and to you the listener thank you for listening the black paper between a mirror breaks my heart that i can't go steal softly through sunshine steal softly through snow